this morning I want to start us off with a backdrop from the Old Testament. So some of you are very familiar with the Old Testament. Let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis this morning. The book of Genesis, I want to speak specifically, you've got Abraham, you have Isaac, and you have Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. He had a baby son. Anybody remember that baby son? His baby, his initial one, the baby was first, it was Joseph. Later on, yes, but he had Joseph. And this was a special son in his old age, and he cherished his son, and he showed him favor. He said he loved him more than all the other kids. Now, if you're a parent this morning, you know that's problematic. If you show favor to one child over the others, now I make all kinds of jokes in our house of who's my favorite and whatever, but it caused all of these other brothers to become jealous. The dad even made this son, Joseph, a coat of many colors to make him stand out. So the, all the boys grew up being jealous of this Joseph. And then at the age of 17, he gets a dream. And in this dream, he goes and tells his brothers about this dream after he had it. And it basically is his brothers bowing down and worshiping him. How do you think that makes them feel? <laughs> He's already the privileged one. He's already daddy's favorite. And then he comes and says, oh, God showed me this in my dream that you guys are going to come and bow down to me. They didn't like it very much. They became more jealous, more envious, and more upset with him. But then he has another dream. And this time he goes and he tells the whole family, and this time it's mom and dad and the brothers who are bowing down and worshiping him. He's not getting a lot of favor amongst his siblings and in his family. So his brothers, out of jealousy and even hatred towards him, scheme, they make a plan, and they sell him into slavery to the Ishmaelites who come by, some traders who come by, and buy Joseph. Now let me ask you, do you know of anything that Joseph had done wrong up to that point? Did he intentionally try to upset his brothers or cause them to be jealous? It was circumstance in his life. His dad showed him favor. God had shown him favor. But they became jealous of him. And now he's sold into slavery. Those Ishmaelites then go sell him in Egypt, into Potiphar's house. Potiphar's an officer of Pharaoh. And we know from the scriptures in Genesis that Joseph served Potiphar well. He served him with integrity. He didn't sit there and whine about his situation of, woe is me, I should be back in my dad's house and, and relaxing and eating and doing all things in my own home. But instead, here I am as a slave. Never whined. Served faithfully. And God showed him favor. And he grew in the eyes of Potiphar, giving him more responsibility in his household. And then there's this interesting verse in Genesis, and it says, oh, by the way, Joseph was a man who was handsome, both in appearance and in form. Now, ladies, I think you understand what that means. Okay, they were like, wow, this dude, he's rocking it. Okay? Well, he gets the attention of none other than Potiphar's own wife. And she comes, and no doubt, Potiphar being the second in command, one of the highest guys in the land, his wife was also a very attractive woman. And she comes to Joseph and starts batting her eyes, you know, the flirtatious battering the eyes, and then says something very direct. No beating around the bush. She says, lie with me. Now, folks, that's pretty direct. <laughs> she says, lie with me. And Joseph denies, and he flees. But this happened, the scripture said, day after day after day, that she would continue to come to him to entice him to lie with her. And out of his respect and honor of God and his respect and honor for Potiphar, he said, I couldn't do such a thing. Until one day, nobody else was around. And she took advantage of the situation. And she grabbed him by his garment and said, lie with me. 
Well, guess what? Nobody's around. I mean, no one's going to see it, right? Yeah, that's not what he was thinking. He took off. He split out of there, but in so doing, left his garment in her hand. Now she feels the fool. And what does she do? She screams out, calls the guards, and says that he tried to force himself upon her. So you have this young man grew up in a home. His brother's being jealous of him. By age 17, they sell him into slavery. He goes and serves faithfully as a slave in Egypt. And yet once again, now he's wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife. So Potiphar comes and throws him in prison. He's done nothing. He's now in prison. And while his time in prison, do you think he's wondering, God, where, where, where are you? God, what's going on? God, you can show up any time now. Until some time goes by, and there's a couple men in that prison who had some dreams that were troubling them. A chief cupbearer and a chief baker. And they tell these dreams to Joseph. And he interprets the dreams. For the cupbearer, it was good news. He was going to be restored back into the king's palace. For the baker, not so much good news. He's going to die. And Joseph tells the cupbearer, hey, remember me. When you go out there, remember me. And Scripture says, cupbearer went out, and guess what? Forgot all about Joseph. It says two years more go by. Joseph's in prison for nothing that he's done. His circumstances are horrible, and yet we see two years go by, and there's an issue going on. Pharaoh has a dream that troubles him, and nobody can interpret the dream. And the cupbearer goes, hey, I remember it was this guy in prison. He was able to interpret my dream. Call for him. And then Joseph comes in, and he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, warns them of a famine that's coming and what to do about it. And Pharaoh gives favor to Joseph. He releases him from prison, makes him an overseer of his house and over all that he had. It's amazing to see. You know, when Joseph was sitting in prison, it's not a time of rejoicing being wrongly accused and in there. In Genesis 40, 15, we read this. He says, For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me in this pit. You get into his mind of, first I was stolen, now I'm stuck in this pit in this prison? But then the opportunity comes. God divinely gives him opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream. It started when he was 17, folks. When he interpreted Pharaoh's dream, was given favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. He was 30 years old. That's 13 years for those of you that are good at math. 13 years. Think about that for a second. And when all this happens, God does this, orchestrates it all so that Joseph could save his own family and God's own people. That the promise that God gave to Abraham, that the, the blessing to all nations that would come through Christ, that he would persevere and secure that through Joseph, this man. So Genesis chapter 45, verse 4 through 8, Joseph now sees his brothers who have come because they're starving and they need rations. Listen to this, Genesis 45, verse 4. Joseph says to his brothers, remember, he's been away for 13 years. All started with them getting jealous and selling him. He says, come near to me. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Look what he says. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Huh? Did you pick that up? 
hey guys, you sold me into slavery. Don't, don't, don't be upset with yourselves. Know this, God sent me here. Verse 6, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be a, a neither plowing nor harvest. And God, verse 7, sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. What? Joseph understood something at this point. He said, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph for 13 years suffered and it began by the jealousy of his brothers. And while he went into slavery and when he went into prison, I'm sure he wasn't knowing the outcome of what God was doing. And yet here he says, it's God that did all this. And then some chapters later, five chapters later, Genesis 50, verse 20, he says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Look, through, through all of Joseph's agonies, from 17 years old through 30, God was in complete control of all of it. God was ordaining all of it. And in all of it, God's glory would be manifested by saving his people, securing the promise, the promised lineage of Christ to come, who would come from the line of Abraham. 13 years of suffering. I want you to think about that. You think his circumstances felt like God was near? If you're here this morning and you're going through suffering, you know the answer to that. Sometimes you wonder, God, where are you? God, where have you gone? God, do you even love me? Church, you know that God loved Joseph? God loved Joseph. Joseph went through 13 agonizing years. But God was also glorified through Joseph's life. And this morning, as we turn to our text, my hope is that you, my fellow Christian would find comfort and rest in knowing that God loves you and is working in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your sufferings, for your good and for his glory. This morning, we're going to continue in our study of John chapter 11. As you're opening up your Bibles to John chapter 11, John chapter 11 records the seventh miracle in the gospel of John. It is most likely or, or, or it is the most powerful sign in John's gospel. The resurrection of a man named Lazarus after he had been dead for four days. As we've gone through this gospel, we've seen the other six miracles. The first one in chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. In chapter 4, he healed the official son. In chapter 5, he healed the invalid who had been an invalid for 38 years. Chapter 6, he fed the 5,000. Also in chapter 6, he walked on water. Just recently, we studied in chapter 9 that he healed the man who was born blind. And now in chapter 11, it's going to be the seventh and final miracle that John records for us, the raising of Lazarus. This morning, we're not going to see the raising of Lazarus. We're only going to look at the first 16 verses, which really is the death of Lazarus. We're looking at the death of Lazarus, and it won't be a bummer this morning. We're going to see how God works in this this morning. So please open up your Bibles, John chapter 11. And we'll read through our text this morning, the first 16 verses of John chapter 11. We read in verse 1, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, 
the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Verse 9, Jesus answers, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Look at verse 12. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So, that, so Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your written word. And Father, we ask that you would illuminate your truth to us through the power of your spirit. Write these truths on our hearts so that we would receive, excuse me, so that you, not us, you would receive all honor and glory. Not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 16 verses this morning. As we look at these 16 verses, we're going to unpack three points this morning. We're going to look at God's glory. We're going to look at God's love. And we're going to look at God's timing. Three points. God's glory, God's love, and God's timing. Before we focus on those, let's look at our text together. Let's walk through this so we understand what's going on. Looking at the opening couple of verses of chapter 11, we read there's a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. First thing, this location, Bethany, it's on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. I explain that because there is some confusion because there's also another Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. This one's about two miles from Jerusalem, which is important. Do you remember who's in Jerusalem? Those who want to kill Jesus. Those who previously had picked up stones and were ready to kill him. This is important because they're going to have to go back to this place. Who are the people here? We're introduced here to uh, Mary, to Martha, to Lazarus. And we learn from Luke's gospel, some of you might be very familiar, that Jesus goes into this village of, of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and Martha welcomes him. Jesus into her home, and when Jesus comes in, you guys remember what Mary does? Mary comes and sits at his feet, and she listens to everything that he teaches. Do you remember what Martha was doing? She's running around busy serving. She's anxious about, is everything taken care of? Are we good? Is everything okay? I got to serve well. And Jesus actually tells her, calm down. You're so anxious. He says, Mary's chosen the right portion. What he's teaching is that it's better to have, or it's proper to have devotion before duty. And Mary was devoted. 
when we learn that Lazarus is their brother. Uh, it's interesting that here in John chapter 11, look at verse 2. It says, Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet. I want to show you something real quick. Flip over to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 3, is when John actually writes about this occurring. He speaks of it as if they already know about it, and then he records it later on. John 12, 3, he says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. I just say this, when some of you are reading through the Gospel of John, you go, wait, why did he say it was Mary who did this? But then later in chapter 12 is when he talks about it. This is at first, the people were very familiar with the story. From the other Gospels, they would know this occurred. This is the Mary that did that. That's all he's writing. This is the one who I'm introducing to you, the Mary who broke this fragrance on Jesus' feet. We read in verse 3, John 11, verse 3, it says, The sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, from best estimates, Jesus' location is one to two days' journey from where she's sending from. Their brother is sick. Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, and not just like, <sighs> got a cough. He's at the brink of death. So what do they do? They send for Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's the message. When you love. We're going to unpack that more later, but first they send for him, and they say, this Lazarus, he's the one you love. Remember, come. You love him. Bless you. Verse 4, we see, but when Jesus heard it, he hears the message. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Church, as you read through John chapter 11, you will learn Nazareth, or Lazarus, Lazarus dies. He dies. And Jesus speaks of this is not an illness that leads to death. You say, wait a minute. He does die. Jesus is not done. That's not the end of the story. And we'll see that unfold this morning, but that's not the end. But he says, it is for the glory of God. Do you remember the man born blind in chapter 9? And his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? It was in John chapter 9, verse 3. Jesus says, it was not that this man has sinned or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. God was in complete control. And Jesus says, this man, Lazarus, this man who I love, don't fret. All that is occurring in his life is for my glory. We'll see that unfold this morning. Verses 5 and 6, keep going with me. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. By the way, this is the second time we see the word loved. He loved Lazarus, and he loved Mary and Martha. These are not some people that he would come out into the the, the, the hillside and look out upon the people and have compassion upon them. These are people he dearly loved. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. He loved Lazarus. And in response to his love, look at verse 6. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, stop there. What should he do? He loves them. As fast as he could, he should go, Right? That's what I would think the loving response would be. John makes it a statement to say he loved Lazarus. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. And then he hears the news and he says, oh, we're going to wait a couple days. 
Now, church, I don't know if you're reading that with me, but I'm like, is that the loving thing to do? I mean, wouldn't the loving thing to be go immediately? If you say you love them, go do something. And you know Mary and Martha, that's what they're pleading for. They know, look, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. We'll read that next week, Lord willing, as we get into the rest of the chapter. But they know Jesus can change all this. But we read here, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Church, I beg you, what is going on? What is going on? Wow, stop for a second. I want you to think about this. Have you ever pleaded with God to act? God, do something. God, I beg of you now, now. I need you now. That's what they're doing. They're agonizing watching their brother die. And they're crying out in center for Jesus saying, we know he could do something. Come. And Jesus hears the news and he stays two days longer. We'll unpack why shortly. Keep going with me, verses 7 through 10. After he said that, he said to his disciples, now it says, then after, he, or after this, it says, after this, meaning after those two days, he says to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, this is where the people last time picked up stones to kill him. That doesn't seem wise. And look at his disciples' response. Verse 8, they say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? It's returning back right where they were going to kill him. And his answer, he, he speaks a parable to them. In verse 9 and 10, he says, Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. It is a parable. I read commentary after commentary. No one could define exactly what that means. What they could say is that a Jewish workday was 12 hours. And what Jesus was telling them is God has allotted so much time for us to go and do his business. Now is the time. And we're in the perfect hand of God, in the perfect providence of God. We don't have to fear or fret. Let's go, Jesus is saying. Verses 11 through 15. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to recover. Which means usually when you get sick, anybody sleep a lot when you're sick? A lot of us do. I did recently when I got sick. I slept all day and all night. And they're going, look, he's going to get rest. He's going to recover. He'll come out of it. Jesus, in verse 13, it says, was speaking of Lazarus' death. And they thought he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Now, in, in the New Testament, you'll read the word sleep a lot. It is in the New Testament euphemism for die, death, dead. You'll see that a lot. They had no clue. So Jesus says, look, he's dead. And he says, but for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may Believe, there's one point. Jesus is going to do something to increase the faith of his own disciples. Not only is he going to work in Mary and Martha and Lazarus' life, he's going to work in his disciples' life, and he's going to work in the lives of unbelievers. He's in complete control. He says, so let us go to him. And lastly, in our text this morning, we see in verse 16, Thomas. Now, when you think of Thomas Church, what do you think of? Ah, oh, look, this poor guy. That is immediate. So many of you that know the New Testament, immediately this poor guy's got a nickname. 
We call him Doubting Thomas. And we get that from, from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 25. That's later in this gospel. After Jesus rose from the dead, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, first of all, it's kind of sick if you think about it. <laughs> what was he talking about? Stick my hand in there and touch it all? Now, this same Thomas that has got this nickname that we all immediately said, that's Doubting Thomas. Why don't you take us back into our context, look back into our context this morning, John chapter 11, verse 16. Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now remember, the disciples warned him, Jesus, you're going back to an area they were trying to kill you. That's what they're thinking. No matter what Jesus said in this parable about, hey, don't worry about it. If we walk in the day, there's nothing to fret. They didn't get that either. They're still thinking, we're going back into danger. Thomas is now the spokesman. And he stands up and says, you know what? We'll go and we'll die with you. How come he's not known as courageous, Thomas? <laughs> yeah, he could have been, but he was actually honestly saying, let's go. That's devotion. It's commitment. We're going to go and we're going to die. This morning, as we look at verses 1 through 16, again, there were three points I want to point out. One is God's glory. The next one is God's love. And lastly, God's timing. So let's start with God's glory this morning. We see this verse jump off the page. It's the title of our message this morning, for the glory of God. When we look at this passage, verse 4 jumps off the page. Why? We have a man who's dying near death, a man who will die. And yet Jesus says something profound in verse 4. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, if you were on the brink of death, you might not want to hear that. You might want to hear something different. But I want to unpack this morning God's glory. Why does that matter? Let's talk about God's glory this morning. Church, you know this. I don't have to tell you this, but God is perfect in all his ways. Complete perfection. Let's name just a handful of his perfections. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly loving. And do you know who else you can label as those things? Nobody. There's nobody. He alone has this beauty of perfection. His glory is infinite perfection. His glory is infinite greatness. His glory is infinite beauty. That's our God. And Scripture says he does all things for his glory, to make it known. Twice in the Psalms, we see the same exact verse, 5711 in Psalm, as well as 1085. They're exactly the same, written exactly the same. And they say, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Above all things, let your glory be above all things. In Psalm 19, verse 1, we read that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
God's glory is declared by his hand. In Psalm 86, verses 9 and 10, we read that all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. I've heard people say, you know, God's got a pretty big ego. That's actually a real argument people make. They say he's all about himself. He's all about his own glory. There is nothing of more value than God. There is nothing around more beautiful than him, more worthy than him. Have you ever stopped to ponder God's infinite worth? You know, we live in, in America, and in America, we have been spoiled by consumerism. You know, we're, we're not walking miles and miles to get water or anything else. We turn on a faucet. And when we have to wait 30 seconds for hot water, we get upset. Man, it was taking so long. We're completely spoiled here. Completely spoiled. And because of that, we don't often just ponder on God. We exalt ourselves a little bit, put ourselves on the same playing field as him. But to ponder his infinite perfection, his infinite greatness, his infinite beauty. King David pondered this. I love what King David said. Psalm chapter 8, verse 4. In pondering God's greatness, David says, What is man that you're mindful of him, that you care for him? I will tell you, church, if you see God for who he is, that would be your response. How would you even care about me? I'm nothing compared to you, your greatness, your great worth. Well, here's the thing. Do you realize that God created you for his glory? God created you. He created you for his glory. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. We read, everyone who is called by my name, God says, Everyone called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. He's speaking of, look, I've made you all. And he's made you for a purpose. Your purpose is for God's glory. And we should do all things for his glory. That's what we were made for. That's why Paul to the Corinthian church. Now, if you're familiar with the church in Corinth, they were a mess. Now, you could think of our church in La Sierra Baptist and bring me a whole list of where we're messy. We don't even come close to the church in Corinth. They had all kinds of issues. But God had created them for his glory. And Paul writes to that church in chapter 10, verse 31. It's right up here on the wall. You don't have to look at this screen. You can look at the wall. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why? Because he created you for that. He formed and fashioned you to bring him glory. And then you can go back to the mindset of David and say, who am I? Who am I? That God would choose me to bring him glory? That he would care for me? Jesus would be more direct in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He said in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, to attribute all praise and honor and glory to him. That's what we're commissioned to do. It's not to put ourselves on you know, social media, on Facebook, and say, look how awesome I am, look what I did today. Say, look how awesome God is. Look how great God is. Look at God's 
glory. It is God alone who is holy. It's God alone who is worthy. It's God alone who's deserving of all praise. He alone. All things are for his glory. Let's transition a little bit this morning to point number two. Let's talk about God's love. God's love. Look in your text in John chapter 11 again, verses 3 and 5. The sisters, that's Martha and Mary, they send to Jesus and they say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Speaking of Lazarus. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Love repeated itself. Anytime you see something repeated, pay attention. There's a purpose why the writer has it repeating. He's pointing out God's love. Here, Jesus loved all of these individuals. But I want to point out something. Here's something that we often have a hard time with. If God loves me, why am I suffering? If God loves me, why the pain and the agony? Why, why the difficulty? Why the trials and the tribulations? If God loves me, why am I going through this? We have in our text three individuals, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary and Martha are agonizing over watching their brother near death, pleading for him, doing anything they can for their brother. Lazarus himself is suffering from something that's going to cause his life to come to an end. Sisters are watching as he fights for his life, and eventually he loses it. I got a question. Verses 3 and 5 say God loves them. God in Christ loves them. So what's going on? Why the suffering? If he loves them, what's going on? I thought God loved them. Church, he does. He does. And he also knows what's best. And guess what, my fellow Christian? He loves you. And he knows what's best in your life. He knows what's best. So if God loves us, why does he then allow suffering? Look at me what Peter writes. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What? What is he talking about? If you're going to purify gold, you put it in a crucible, and you put fire under that crucible, and you heat it up. And as that gold heats up, coming to the top are all the impurities, the dross, and that's skimmed off to purify that gold. That's what's happening. When it talks about the testedness of our faith, it means to mature in our faith, to grow in our faith to be purified in the faith. Many of you are familiar with what James says about this. James says in chapter 1, he says, count it all joy. Now, I will tell you right now, I've never had someone come to me and say, Pastor, I am so joyful that I'm going through suffering and trials. James doesn't write it that way. He doesn't say you're going to feel super excited and joyful about this. He says, count it. Reckon it as joy. Why? He says, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, this is certain, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nada. 
and you're going to mature all the way. That God's going to use these things in your life. Does that mean he doesn't love you? Just the opposite. It means he absolutely loves you. And that's why he wants your faith to mature. Here's, the, here's a beautiful thing Peter writes, that in all your suffering, to know this, that after you've suffered for a little while, we read in 1 Peter 5.10, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God himself will do these things. After you've gone through testing and trials, that he will come and he will comfort you. He will strengthen you. He will get you through it. We read this in Psalm chapter 34, verse 19, that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. Are you going through something right now? Going through some difficulties? Are you questioning God? God, why? Why this? Why now? God, do you even love me? Do you even care? Fellow Christian, he does. He loves you, and he's working. In his love, he's allowing you to endure a season of testing, a season of difficulties to grow you in the faith, but he will deliver you from that. Don't let your circumstances fool you to believe anything else. If God is for you, who could be against you? We know, and I read it last week, great verse of hope, Romans 8, 28. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Notice, this is every single genuine believer. Every single genuine believer. God will work all things together for good. All things. It is a promise of God. And God cannot lie. So he'll work it out for your good. He has promises. But know this, church. He does it in his perfect timing. Whew. That's what we're going to end with this morning. Is point number three is God's timing. It is not our timing, but God's timing. And we see this in our text this morning in verse 6, John chapter 11, verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Which, by the way, from the rest of the context, we read, by the time that Jesus actually got to Judea, to their home, Lazarus had been dead for four days. He wasn't still suffering. He had been dead by the time Jesus got there, dead for four days. And Lord willing, we'll read about that next week and see why. But four days dead. Great, now Jesus is here. Jesus, in verse 6, waits two days. What do you think Mary and Martha wanted? My brother's sick now. Come, Jesus. Come now. So let's talk about God's timing. First thing we need to understand about God's timing is that his timing is perfect. He is never early and he is never late. He is always right on time. And since his timing is perfect, that would mean that our timing most likely is not. And his timing, unfortunately, usually doesn't align with our timing. And there's a reason for that. His timing usually includes us waiting. And nobody likes to wait. 
You ever been at the store and you get in line and the line backs up, it's going slow. You're like, of course, this line. Then I should have been in that line. And you start doing this whole reasoning out because you don't want to wait. You start making these absurd conclusions like, if I was in that line, that line would have slowed down too. It's just me and then I have to wait, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. You all do this. We hate to wait. Or you get on the phone to call customer service and they say, we'll be right with you an hour and a half later. You hate to wait. We hate waiting. We don't like waiting for anything. I, I was sick recently. I didn't want to wait to get better. I want to be better now. I didn't want to wait. We don't like to wait. But know this, God uses his timing in a believer's life for their good. That wait is for your good. Not the answer we ever want to hear. Mary and Martha did not want to hear, oh, by the way, Jesus said he's going to wait a couple days. The brother's about to die. What do you mean he's going to wait? God's timing is perfect. And although we want answers now, especially when we're suffering, God's timing will always be perfect. God's timing requires us to wait. And what that does is it deepens our trust in him. You know, there are famous, uh, famous proverbs that you'll see on mugs at the, at the bookstore. You'll see them on posters. But what exactly do they mean? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, some of you can quote it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your paths straight. I can't tell you a better time to trust in the Lord than when you're suffering. Or when you're pleading and begging for him to show up and yet you're going, where are you? It's to trust in him, not to lean on your own understanding. To go, God, I know you're in control. God, I know you've got this. God, I know you work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. To trust in him with all your heart. Church, do you understand what that means? It's with all of you. How many of you, don't raise your hand because I know we're all guilty of it. In middle of praying and God, asking God to intervene, your mind's already wondering at plan B. You guys following me? Again, I'm going to go ahead and accuse all of us. But I'm saying, God, I need you to do a mighty miracle. And my mind's already wondering, okay, and I need to go do this or that now and, and figure this out. To trust in him with all your heart means there's no wandering. It is God, to remain, I'm going to remain steadfast. I'm not going to lean on my wandering, what I think is going to happen and what I think should take place. But I'm going to put you first and foremost. To wait on God also means that we'll stop running around like a chicken with its head cut off. How many of us frantically respond to situations and just frantically run around and see how we can solve it instead of asking God to intervene and waiting upon him? We read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with the wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You know what it's like to frantically run in circles when you're trying to solve your own problems? You grow weary. You begin to wander. But to wait on him, to wait on the Lord. When you say, God, now, and he says, no, wait, it causes you to keep seeking him. Keep coming back. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. We read in Psalm chapter, or 105, Psalm 105, verse 4, seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Guess what? When you're waiting, you're going to keep going. God, God, where are you? God, where are you? 
Day 300, God, where are you? God, I still need you. God, I still need you to intervene. 13 years later in Joseph's life. 13 years. We don't like waiting 45 minutes on the phone for the customer service. He waited 13 years to see God. Now, God was working the whole time. He, was, he never left Joseph. Okay, you just go for 13 years over there, and I'll go over here and do something. He was with him the entire time. But for him to see the hand of God and what God was doing, 13 years go by. Here you got Mary and Martha. They want Jesus now. Jesus, come now. Immediately heal our brother. And he doesn't do that. And they agonize for their brother until he finally breathes his last. Jesus said, he's dead. as we'll study Lord willing next week, they're going to bury him. They're going to mourn him. They are agonizing over their brother. The church, Jesus had a plan the entire time. It's not like, oh, I forgot what was going on over there in Bethany. No, he knew exactly what was going on. He said it is for the glory of God that this is taking place. He had a plan. He was working all things together for good and for his glory. Fellow Christian, you need to know that, that God loves you deeply. And he cares for you greatly. And he's there with you in your suffering. And while his timing is different than your timing, know that his timing is perfect. His timing is perfect. And he will work all things together for your good and for his glory. Church, would you stand with me as we close in prayer together? Father, as we rise before you this morning, perhaps someone in here this morning need to be reminded of your goodness. Father, you are a God who loves and you've demonstrated that love by sending your son Christ. That while we were yet sinners, Christ would die in our place. That he would pay the full penalty for us. And yet God, in that salvation that comes through Christ alone, it didn't end there. That God, you love us dearly. That you've called us your own. And Father, you've continued to work behind the scenes at all times. Father, may we be mindful of your glory in all that we do to pursue bringing you glory. Whether we eat or we drink or as we let our light shine, that you would receive all honor and glory. God, may we be reminded and not fooled in times of, of suffering, in times of trial. May we not be fooled to think that, that you no longer love us, but we're reminded that your love is even in that suffering, that you're working in it. God, may we be reminded to cling to you, to seek you, to pursue you in times of waiting or waiting for you to respond, knowing, God, that you are working and that you're doing all things for our good and your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.